what I would say to myself at so many key junctions in my life is that you are worthy of love and affection as you are right now. You don't need to be the best cricketer. You don't need to be be the funniest person in the room. You don't need to um, be the best looking, which is always good news for me, but uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to be, you know, all these things. You're just like, you're worth, like if you're worthy, you are worthy. And there are times where, you know, straight after the breakup with my ex-fiancee when I wasn't really working, I felt so unworthy of connection and just I felt so low. I didn't really feel very worthy of showing up in the world. I felt a little bit ashamed of the fact I didn't, I was 28 or 29 and didn't have a job really and had no money to my name. And, but um, I, would, I, would, I would say you're worthy. And that's a message to everyone, no matter what you're going through in life right now, that you are worthy of love and affection as you are. You don't need to be the perfect mum or dad to be worthy of love from your kids. You don't need to be earning a huge salary. You as a person, as you are, you're worthy. Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. It's an absolute honour to bring you this week's guest, Hugh Van Kylenberg, author of The Resilience Project, which, if you haven't read it yet, firstly, what have you been doing? And secondly, read it ASAP, if not sooner, or listen to the audiobook. It's one of those books that once you read it, the lens you view the world through profoundly changes, and you become one of those people who tell everyone in their lives to pick up a copy right away, just like I did to you a few seconds ago. In this chat, we discuss the Resilience Project's humble beginnings, from his little sister's battle with anorexia and how that impacted his family, to a life-changing trip to India where he cracks the code of happiness, to creating a mental health curriculum that has now reached more than a million Australians. I particularly love Hugh's tips parents can implement now to teach our children gratitude, empathy and mindfulness and foster resilience. I hope you enjoyed this episode and laugh as much as I did. Here's Hugh. Hugh, thank you so much for being on the Lemonade Podcast. I am such a huge fan of the Resilience Project and I'm, I'm so blown away and humbled that you're on, the, on my little podcast. So thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. We've only known each other for a few minutes, but uh, I'm a big fan of yours as well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. I'll now get into you about what it is that you really love about the podcast. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, I, love the to- I love the topic, I have to say. Thank I love you. the topic. It's a, it's a it's a very important, uh, especially right now. In fact, the you, like the theme of your podcast has probably never ever been as important as it is right now. And I, um, the more people that listen, the better. Oh, thank you so much. You are in Melbourne as well, Hugh. Um, yeah. How are you going? It's stage four lockdown, and it, shit's fucked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, it's just so bad. It's one of the better one of the better descriptions for Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because it's like 10 degrees and it's pouring rain as well. It's like, this will be our darkest moment, I feel. But um, to answer your question, I had this, um, my standard answer at the moment for how I'm going is that it just reminds me of many years ago, I was coaching a career club and we had to get this guy, 
we had to get apparel and all the cricket clothes provided for all the players. And, um, and this guy approached me, he's just started up his clothing company and he was a lovely guy. He battled a little bit with a few things, but he was a lovely bloke. And um, we went with him for a couple of years. He did our apparel and he just stuffed up a lot of stuff and, and he just started this business. There's only a few of us, me, our club and two other clubs who were going with him. And um, I had to break the news to him that we were not going to be going with him the next season. And I, was, I drove out to his little warehouse way out of Melbourne. I, was, I just felt like I had to have a conversation face-to-face. Such a lovely man. I got there and he goes, oh, my number one client. Great to see you. I've got you a pie and a donut. And I went, oh, okay, thanks, mate. <laughs> so we're sitting down eating a pie and a donut together. There's a point to this story. Uh, and I said, um, <laughs> and he said, um, anyway, can't wait to work with you again this year. And I said to him, um, look, mate, I, I, as I'm halfway through my pie and donut on the other hand, I said, I'm really sorry to do this, but I just need to let you know, I wanted to do it face to face. So we're not going to go with you this year. We're going to go with a different company. And he said to me, and this is the point of the story. <laughs> One of the funniest quotes I've ever heard. He said, oh, well, you win some, you lose most. <laughs> just, oh. <laughs> and I can't, I forgot about that. Win. And when he said that, I was like, in my head, I was like, that's quite a funny thing to say. <laughs> But, it was, but it's come back to me like eight years later. Every time, every time someone says, how are you going right now? I think, well, I'm winning some, I'm losing most. <laughs> that about sums up 2020, I think, just in a nutshell. You win yeah, some, you, you win lose some, most. <laughs> I, that, I was really hoping that you were going to re- reach the conclusion of that story and say that you decided to put in another mammoth order with him. That's heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> it was oh, devastating. He, had, he framed our shirts all over his office um, like just because he was so proud to be working with us. He's such a great guy, but it just, he was very passionate about apparel, like sporting apparel, but he didn't quite have the, you know, we wanted to order online and he didn't really have that. He's just about, anyway, that's a, that's a boring part of the story. But it was, um, <laughs> no, but he's just ha- absolutely heartbreaking. I this, hope he's doing okay. <laughs> yeah. There's another story on this guy, which I love so much. He kept calling me, I don't know why I'm telling this story, but he kept calling me Biggie. Whenever he'd see me, he'd go, g'day Biggie. And I'd go, g'day mate. And I was like, why is he calling me Biggie? And after about six months, I said to him, sorry, I'm going to ask, why do you call me Biggie? And he goes, isn't that what you call yourself? And I said, what are you talking about? And he's, I said, I never call myself Biggie. And he goes, yeah, you do. And he went through my emails. And one of the emails I'd sent him, I'd said, cheers, mate. And I'd written Huey, but it auto-corrected to Biggie. So ever since that day, <laughs> since that day, he thought I called myself Biggie. And for six months, he called me Biggie. And I never knew why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that it's really made this very dreary Friday for me. That is a very, very funny story. That was, I I've never thank- told that story before in my entire life. But anyway, there you go. Well, thank you so much, Biggie. It's good to hear that you're going well. Um, now, oh, I don't know where to come back from that. I feel like we should just wrap this up now. Um, how are you staying sane? What are you doing? What are the things that are, you know, you said you've got two small children. What are you doing just to stay, have some sort of sense of normality? I have trial, uh, trial and error for many things. Like I've tried many things to get me through this year. And I think, uh, I don't know where to start. Like I have seriously tried so much stuff like um fitness has been a massive part of it i've loved the the fitness element but then i've noticed myself getting way too competitive with myself about if i don't improve one week i'm like oh what when i i'm like oh what what the hell i've had a bad week i've been and so um i've had like half an hour once the kids go to bed and penny goes to bed half an hour of like we've got a front room like a spare room and i go in there do like stretches and like foam roller and listen to like yoga music and have candles on and stuff like that. I remember Penny walked past, my wife walked past, <laughs> well, I hadn't told her I was, I was doing it. 
And I just had, it's quite dark in the room and Penny's turning the lights off to go to bed and she opened up the door and she watched, she goes, I was in this weird stretching pose with candles on. Uh, and then he goes, what the fuck are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just, I'm just trying something. I'm just, and I loved that for a while. I was, I was drinking green tea while I was doing it and it felt really nice. And but I kind of stopped doing that. I'm now watching World, Street, World Series cricket every night. Um, I don't know. I tell you that the most, imp- and this is relevant to your, to the theme of this podcast, but I think I've had this thing in my head around like, um, there's a song by someone called, I've never known if it's, you might know, Fru Fru or Frau Frau. I've never known what, what uh, but the song, the lyrics, it's a beautiful song. And the lyrics say there's beauty in the breakdown. And yeah. it's sort of about, um, I think it's called Jump In or, um, but it's all about how like the breakdown is the most powerful part. Like, and there's so many incredible quotes out there. Victor Frankl, if you want to look him up, he's a Auschwitz survivor, neuropsychologist or neuropsychiatrist who talks about the adversity in your life is the, is the most important time in your life because that's, mm-hmm. that's when you make changes and that's when you decide to adapt and to grow and to become stronger because of what you've been through. And I have really kind of in my head the whole way, I'm just going, this is, I, I go probably the same as you, Elizabeth. I, like, I get really sad when I think about my son and mm. my daughter's too young to understand, but he just doesn't get why we're wearing masks. He doesn't get yes. why he can't see his grandparents, his friends, and that really breaks my heart. But I'm kind of just saying to myself, like, um, I want him to look back on this stage as a really happy memory in his life, and that's kind of what I'm, is keeping me going. Uh, but I've also accepted, it's taken me a while, it's taken me a long while, but I've accepted that this is, the new way the world is like this is the way the world is and it could be another couple of years we don't really know but this is like when you accept something properly accept something you can then kind of move on but if you're fighting against it the whole time it, it can make it harder so um beauty in the breakdown i can't remember the name of the song but it's on the it's on the gut my favorite movie of all time is garden state and it's on the garden yeah. state album um i remember explaining it so i do a lot of work with the port adelaide football club and we did a session where we got them to share you know, some really tough things from their life. And I'd preface it by saying there's beauty in the breakdown. Don't be scared if you if it's really hard and you're feeling in a breakdown, there's beauty in that. And amazingly, it wasn't lost on a group of footballers who went, yeah, we get it. And they're really good. But anyway, yeah, that's a long yeah. answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. It makes so much sense. It's like this collective trauma, I guess, that we're all going through together, mm-hmm. but in the process learning, as you were just saying, the beauty in the breakdown, the art of surrender and just... Yes total acceptance and we'll get to this but mindfulness is such a huge part of your work and i guess this is the byproduct might be of this time that it is teaching us to be more mindful and present which is a wonderful side effect yeah well we've got more time haven't we like we always used to complain that i'm too busy i've got too much on and i don't have enough time and we all wish we had more time well we've got it (laughs) we've got more time now and um i think it's important that we do focus on this is horrendous like it's this this disease or this this um, illness, I heard it described on the news last night as a psychopath, which I found quite scary. Mm. It's a woman in that saying, people need to understand coronavirus is a psychopath. I was like, oh my gosh, that's scary. It's been horrendous, but you've got to hang on to the silver linings. And, and you know, we always, we'd see movies come out and go, I don't have time to watch that. I don't know. We, we got time to do the things that we thought we didn't have time to do before. Mm. So you've got to focus on that as well. Um, and yeah, the, the mindfulness part of it is a, is a really big part. You mentioned mindfulness. I mean, we spend way too much time thinking about the future and way too much time thinking about the past. And there are two things that we don't have control over. And that by its very nature is really anxiety provoking. Mm-hmm. If you 
the only thing we ever have control over in our life really, and this sounds deeply philosophical, but that's true. The only thing we have control over is right now. That's the only thing we have control over. So the more time we spend focusing on something we can control, the less anxious we become. Um, and, and if that's something that you want to look into, everyone listening, uh, this is a great chance to do it during this um, long year in Victoria, especially you've got plenty mm. of time on you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, Hugh, with all of my interviews, I love to get my guests to go take me right back, right back to their childhood, what it was like growing up. What was it yeah. like for you? Uh, I'm, I'm like absolutely amazing. I, we grew up in a, um, eastern suburbs of Melbourne um, and we had this huge backyard. Mum and Dad um, uh, bought this house. Dad was a... Um, Dad's a dentist, mum's a librarian, and, and they, they, they said back then they way overspent what they could afford, but they bought this house in Bourne with this ridiculously big backyard. And it, it felt like we were living in the country. Honestly, it felt like we grew up in the country because it was just exploring all these different parts. And so incredible childhood. I, I, um, mum and dad were incredible, you know, couldn't ask for anything more. Very close to my brother and sister. Um, my memories really, the, my, my fondest memories of playing cricket in the backyard with my dad um, or, or mum. Mum was the one who taught me how to play cricket when dad was at work and playing basketball or football or running and just loved it. And then um, I guess that all kind of changed for us when um, the primary school was amazing. I love primary I was incredibly shy, painfully shy at primary school. <laughs> um, uh, I remember I just so often just sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, how do I know what to say? What should I say? When, when do I, how do you, no, I just found um, and then, um, but apparently the reason I'm like that, which is another story I haven't told before, which is quite funny. Mum said before the age of three, I was very confident and would walk into any situation and just be very good. And she said that all changed when I took you to my friend's house for a lunch one day. And apparently when I was three, I used to wear mum's. So mum bought a new handbag and I said, can I have your old one? And mum goes, yeah, of course you can. I used to walk around with mum's old handbag on, handbag on my shoulder, but it would fall off. So I used to walk around with one arm just straight up in the air to make sure the handbag didn't fall off. And I was very proud of probably walking around with a handbag. Mum and I would walk around the shops, the streets of Bourne with handbags. <laughs> and um, we, we went to mum's friend's house for lunch and mum said, I don't think you should take your handbag. And I said, why not? And mum said, there are some big boys there today and they may not like your handbag. Oh. And I said, apparently I said, I love it. And mum goes, I don't think they will, darling. And I said, no, no, they'll like it. So mum goes, okay. So we went there and all the big boys are playing out the back. I don't remember this, mum told me. And I walked out there proudly with my handbag arm in the air. And mum said five minutes later, I came back in bawling my eyes out because they'd taken my handbag off me and beaten me up with it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so now so you've got a son and I've got a son, my son's four. Can you imagine how that would feel as a parent to watch that happen to your well, child? That's the thing. I used to find that story so funny and everyone, but now I've got a son. I, I, it breaks my heart, that story. Yes, like, exactly. It's so funny. But when you think about that actually happening to your child, it would, <laughs> it would say, oh, I would cry myself to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Mum said they'd beat the living shit out of you with your own handbag, like all these big boys. And I'm, apparently they had to leave. I couldn't stop crying for hours. And I was like saying that they, they were hitting me in the head and the, I was on the ground and they were laughing and hitting me in the head. <laughs> and so, so anyway, I think from that point on, I became unbelievably shy. I was like, I don't like. That's the moment like psychologists would pinpoint as an early childhood trauma that changed everything. And I haven't even told my psychologist that story. <laughs> I've, got, I've got this wonderful psychologist 
that I, I who joins the dots for everything in my life. And I haven't even told her that story yet, but um, I'll have to remember that for next time. <laughs> definitely. That is one definitely worth bringing up. Now, Hugh, everything changed in your family when your sister became unwell. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So my memory of it, um, and it's funny, in writing my book, we, I had to get the story straight with mum, dad, my brother, my sister, and we all had very different recollections of it. But I can only really go with my memories. And my memories are that, I just remember arguments started around dinner time. Mum and my sister would fight, have these huge fights around food. And I, I was 16, my sister's 14, my little brother was 11. And Georgia stopped eating and um, she would develop anorexia nervosa. I remember mum and dad explained it to us. I wasn't having it. I, I just remember very clearly thinking, I remember looking at mum and dad one night. Dad was very teary. Dad didn't jump into the arguments too much. He would just often cry. Um, I could, he would go and do the washing up and he'd, I could see him and he'd be very teary. And I remember thinking, oh, sorry, sorry. I remember, um, I, I remember thinking at that point, I just don't think we're a happy family anymore. And I remember that was an awful feeling of going from like, I think we're the happiest family I know to we are not happy. And I remember having a very strong feeling at that point of I wish I knew what to do to make mum and dad feel happy again. It was a really strong, wanting mum and dad to be happy again. And so when I was 16, I became fascinated with the question, what is it that makes people happy? Uh, and also my little brother wanted him to feel happy. I felt, gosh, he's 11 years old. That's not fair. He shouldn't be dealing with this at age 11. Um, because it was really bad. Like my sister's illness was, it absolutely ravaged her. Like she was weighing in at one point, you know, 18 years old. I think she was weighing in like 32, 33, 33 kilograms. So oh it was God. really bad. Um, and so um, I, from, I didn't know what the answer was to like, how do you make people happy? But I knew that if I told stories, like at the dinner table, we'd sit down and I'd try and get in first and tell these. And I think my job now is to tell stories really that help people to feel happy. That's kind of my job, which is a bit of a strange thing how it's happened. But every night I'd sit down, I'd go, right. And I'd try and entertain the whole family. And I felt like I'd tell these wildly embellished stories about my day and, and make everyone laugh. And I felt if I did that well, I'd get in before the argument started and would have a hope of having a, a, a nice dinner. But um, that's kind of, yeah, I, I guess the reason I say that is just very relevant to what I do for my job now. But, you know, I'd be, I'd be desperate sometimes. Like I remember one night I couldn't think of any, I was like, oh, I got nothing tonight. And mum and dad go, dinner's ready. And I, I took all my clothes off and just walked to dinner completely nude and went, sat down and went, righto, what's for dinner? <laughs> like, I'd do anything to try and make mum and dad laugh. I was like, anything. I didn't really care. Like, I was just, I just got to make people laugh and then we'll be happy and my sister will get better. But um, yeah, that was, a, that was a really dark time in our, in our lives. And I think if I'm being honest, by the time I reached 18, 19, I kind of like a lot of, I want to say like a lot of males in Australia, but I think that's a very unfair generalisation. But I'll say like a lot of people in Australia, when there's something really painful in your life or something that's a bit too hard, we sort of, a lot of men will kind of just go, no, it's not happening and sort of block it out and pretend it's not happening, um, which is a very unhealthy way of dealing with it. But that's kind of what I did. Uh, I had a girlfriend back then, my girlfriend from school. Um, she had this uh, a beautiful family, lived about half an hour away. And as soon as I could drive, I was spending a lot of time at their house. And I think I was just, um, I look back on it and I feel so bad about that, but I was kind of, escaping somewhat from absolutely when an entire family experiences a collective trauma like this how does it change the unit and how does that family unit then move forward together well it changes all our lives forever you know i mean 
like I it had a huge impact on my little brother. Uh, you know, he was his bedroom is right next to my sister. He had no escape from it. He was there, you know, in his face all the time. Um, so I have no doubt it's had a big impact on him. Um, it was mum and dad's sole focus for a long time, and so it should be. But it was like I understand it now as a parent. Like one of your kids is really sick, you can do any anything you can to help them to feel better. So that was a huge. Uh, someone said to me the other day, "You're only ever as happy as your unhappiest child." Mm-hmm. And when I say the other day, it was like a few years ago, and I was like, oh, "Okay, fair enough." But I get that now. Like I um, I totally understand that. My wife has OCD and. I found myself being way over obsessed, like no pun intended, with worrying about my son, you know, inheriting that OCD. And I'm, you know, noticing all this, his characteristics and all that kind of stuff now. So um, it has an enormous impact on the family. Um, what I will say though, um, and my sister, I write about this in the book, and it's actually the opening chapter. And it's, I look back and I'm worried it's a, it's a bit of a heavy opening to the book. But this all happened to my sister because she was the victim of an awful assault when she was three years old from a complete stranger off the side of the road. Um, and that path, you know, that's put my taken my sister down this path of mental illness. And But I talked to my sister about it the other day and just said, oh, I still feel so sad about what happened to you. And she said, I don't. And she said, wow. I'm doing so much stuff in the world right now. My sister does so much for other people. Like she's got charities all over the joint. She's got, she lives in LA and her whole life is about, she's got, she's doing way too much. She's got an organization to help every type of minority, every person who's struggling in LA. Um, And she said, I wouldn't be doing any of this if it wasn't for what that man did to me back then. Like I am so determined to help other people now. And it's because of what he did to me. And she said, by the way, I don't think you'd be doing what you're doing if it wasn't for that incident as well. So yeah, we can, we can sort of bitch and moan about it and be upset about it. But at the same point, you got to remember that um, it's been very defining for, you know, for, for us too, that's for sure. And judging by what you said earlier, you didn't glean that lesson at the time. It probably, it took quite a few years for you to realize, I guess, yes. the silver lining packaged in this incident. Yeah. Oh, like, <laughs> I, I did all this stuff like I was, you know, I, it was many, many years later that I found myself living in India where I came across this community of people who was a village I was volunteering with my ex and um, we were both teachers. Well, I, I think she still is a teacher, I don't know. But, um, and we were, we were teaching over there and, and um, I was in this community of people who were so happy and I found that very inspiring and wanted to learn off them. So I started, you know, studying what these people were doing and then put into this program. And it wasn't after the Resilience Project started i think one night i was having a beer with penny and we were just chatting about the, the ridiculous growth of the resilience project and we we're just sort of reflecting on where it's gone recently and how big is this become this you know beast of a thing in a good way but and i was just reflecting on it just, and it just hit me that like it's all because of you know what georgia went through and and um their experiences and it's uh, yeah it was it wasn't i didn't realize till many many years later that it's what like I never, I never at any, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, and, and, to, and to reference your question, I, I never once went, right, a bad thing's happened to me. This is what it is. What can I, what can I do that's positive from this? It just kind of happened. I look back and realize that's kind of what it was. And I think that has been a very organic way of it happening for me. I think if someone had said to me when I was 19, 20, 21, look, what you're going through is really hard, but what can we do now? to make this a positive from here. It would have been too forced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's an important thing 
for people who are listening because there's a lot of rhetoric around, right right now around the world about like let's turn this and i was even saying it before but let's turn this adversity into a positive like you totally but it's not something you can force you can't sit there and go right i'm going to write down the positives and how am i going to turn this into it? i mean you can you can do all that kind of stuff but um i think letting it happening organically is also when you have time to process what you're going through as well yeah, you might not know the full impact for some time. As you just said, it can take years for those for it all to make sense and to see how it all unraveled, how it did. You touched on then um, that you're in India, which I just loved that part of the book so much and I got so much out of it. Can you take me back to that time there and how it changed your life? Yeah, so, um, I, so my ex-partner had said to me, um, uh, we should go and do some volunteer teaching. And I actually said, to be honest, I said, I think we should go and find a school that's going to pay us um, because uh, it could fund more travel. And and she said, no, 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 I really think we should do vol- There's so many kids over here who so desperately need teachers. And I was saying, yeah, but like, you know, kids, there are kids that need teachers that will pay us as well. So, and she was saying, no, no, we should volunteer. And, and we ended up doing that. I'm so happy we did because we ended up in a community called Tixay and she kind of arranged it, the village. And I went, yeah, it seems pretty good. I'll never forget the feeling I had when I arrived on the first night and realised there's no running water, there's no electricity, there's no, you know, we were sleeping on a, on a floor, there's no bed there. And I remember in the middle of the desert and I was like, oh my God, there's no way. I can't remember what, I can't remember the exact time frame we set for ourselves, but I think it was like, we'll see how we go for a couple of weeks. And night one, I'm thinking, no, nah, I'm doing two nights. Like I can't, there's no way I can do this. I'm looking at the bus schedule and when's a bus coming past this village again to go back to the major city. Um, but I met a kid in grade three, his name was Stunzen. And I remember um, meeting him and just thinking, <laughs> I have never like seen joy like this before. Like, like meeting him, I didn't realize at the time, but it changed my life forever. And, and um, because I just became obsessed with this kid. It sounds very creepy, not obsessed, but I became... Very... <laughs> okay, okay, I didn't mean I wasn't obsessed with it. I was... Very focused on him. If that sounds better, I don't know, but I was <laughs> found him very <laughs> admirable. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's better. Thank you. Yeah, I need it. <laughs> Gosh, that's better. terrible. I found the way he lived his life to be quite inspirational. Is what I should have said. <laughs> Just to be very clear. I was not obsessed with a nine-year-old boy. <laughs> oh. Oh. Okay. Anyway, uh, I became very. Uh, yeah, I, I was. I found the way he lived to be inspirational because he just seemed so happy. And I kept looking around, going, "There's nothing here in the middle of the desert. There's no electricity. Like, you know, no one's got any of the things that we think we have to have to be happy. Like, we have to have our smartphone. We have to have an iPad. We have to mm-hmm. um, have social media. We have to have the internet. We have to have Netflix. Have to have the best clothes. Have to have this, and then we'll feel happy. But there's none of that stuff. He had two pairs of clothes. He had a school uniform. And he had a t-shirt he wore on the weekends. He had a pair of shoes with the end cut out of them so his toes could, so his feet could fit. Mm. He loved playing cricket and for, for a bat, he used a branch from a tree and he used a, um, and he used a, a, like hundreds of rubber bands all wrapped together to make a ball. Um, so happy. And I remember thinking, in fact, I remember having tea one night. Um, every, every people love having, like they're obsessed with, in India, they're obsessed with having tea. It's like a, um, we don't have anything in the equivalent in Australia, but um, it's like this huge bonding experience of like, come over for tea and you sit there and sometimes you don't talk. Like, well, a lot of the time you I couldn't talk. So I didn't speak Hindi and that limited. So we just sit there and have tea and just sort of smile awkwardly. It wasn't, they weren't awkward. I was unbelievably awkward. <laughs> that sounds uh, so awkward. 
it to me. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> I remember thinking at one point, I couldn't be, this could not be more of a foreign environment for me. Yeah. Yeah, I feel so unbelievably calm. And I had this thought one day of thinking, if I took any one of these people and I put them in Melbourne or in Sydney or wherever you want to go in Australia, they would be absolutely overcome with anxiety at the way we live our lives. And I just had this thought of, I reckon these people are onto, no, it wasn't even these people onto something. It was, do you know what? I think in Australia, I think we're doing a lot wrong. I mean, in Australia right now, it has this, we are the second most medicated country in the world for anxiety disorder. Yeah. And yet the living condition is so incredible. So I remember back then thinking, I reckon we're doing something wrong. And and, uh, and we ended up living in, in the village. We stayed for, I think it was about three months in the end. Um, she had to head home for a little bit for a funeral. Um, so I think all up was around three months. And, and in that time, I just kind of did what they did and tried to live a life a bit like they did. I mean, I was still, I'm not going to say I was amazing like them and did everything they did, but I tried a few things and because I was very fascinated with the stuff that they were doing. I love um, how when you talk about stuns and saying this to things and that would mean that how awesome is this, check out this. How yeah. did that, I guess, alter the way you viewed the world and then how did that then inform the principles that you came up with jam did that play a big part uh in retrospect it did yeah like it wasn't i didn't consciously do it at the time but so for those of you who don't know the dis story very simply this kid whenever he saw something he's really grateful for he just pointed to it and said this because he couldn't say the th so and it was stuff like his shoes you know it was stuff like rice for lunch where he got provided we cooked rice for him well i didn't but the teachers cooked rice for him every day so we got rice and the first time i ever saw him do it i haven't told this story before but i was just thinking about it the other night when i was looking through photos um the first time i ever saw him say this was my ex and i her name's anjali she's a, a wonderful wonderful teacher um she she raised money from back home um and i think in memory is around two thousand five hundred dollars and we caught a bus to the to the nearest, like, it's a bit like a news agent's in the city of Lai or in the, in the, in the town of Lai. And, 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 um, and with the money that she managed to raise, um, we, we, we purchased all these exercise books and exercise, like, um, uh, like textbooks and toys and ball games and all that kind of stuff. And I remember we gave them to all the kids and one night we were going, Angela and I were going for a walk through the city or through the village at night. And this kid stuns and was kind of standing on a rooftop and he was yelling, he was going, hey, this, this. And I was like, what? And he was like waving the book at us. And then he started ripping pages out and throwing it. They were like floating everywhere off this like landing that he was standing. And he was going, this, this. And I didn't quite, I was like, is he ripping up the books we just bought him? What's going on? <laughs> um, and I, and I, um, I don't remember if she'll remember that moment. Um, uh, she might do, but, but then over the next sort of few weeks, I just noticed more and more he was saying this and I realized what he was pointing out was the good things that were happening. And um, so so the, so the things that I saw them practicing over there were gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. So gratitude, when you focus on what you've got, don't worry about what you don't have. A lot of us struggle with that. We need the next best thing in order to be happy. Then we get it. And then two weeks later, we're unhappy again. Empathy, when you um, feel what someone else feels. And this kid was so unbelievably kind. And mindfulness, which we spoke about before, being calm and being present. Um, that This story really summarizes to me, it's kind of like all those three things coming together. Um, he was so present, he could just stop and pay attention to the stuff that he had. Um, and he liked sharing it with people. It was a really lovely thing to do, like sharing his joy around having shoes. So, But I didn't. I, I came back to Melbourne and set up the Resilience Project and it took me a while to get going. But 
I, I didn't tell the diss story. I didn't see the, I didn't think it was, I didn't see it as a story to share. I mean, it's probably the most popular story in all the talks I do. It's what everyone wants to hear. And I always think I got to stop, stop telling it. Like people will be sick of it. People are saying, no, no, I'm bringing so-and-so along. They've, they've got to hear the diss story. Um, but I, for four years, five years, I was doing those talks. I wasn't telling the diss story. And I found myself doing a presentation in a jail, in a um, youth detention centre, like a, a, a in juvie. And um, they are a difficult, like a difficult audience, which is easily my favourite because it's a great moment when you win over a difficult audience. But they are really difficult. And I was clutching at straws and I told them the diss story. And I remember looking at their faces and I remember going, whoa, this is really hit home. And then I'm leaving juvie and I'm signing out doing all the paperwork and, and I heard them in the yard and they're all going, this, this, this. And they're pointing wow. out stuff in Juvie that they're really grateful for. I remember going, whoa, this story is really like quite the hook. I'm going to use this when I've got a really difficult audience. But then the next audience I went to um, could not have been an easier audience. It was, um, it was Mecca Cosmetic Company, mm. lovely, lovely group of girls, basically women who loved this kind of stuff. I told them that story and they were like, oh my gosh. And I, so from that day on, I started telling the story everywhere I went because it just, I think it resonates with people. Like we have so much in Australia, but we kind of are pretty quick to take it for granted. Like, I don't know how many people before lockdown, you know, let's say you love going to the movies. I don't know how many people would sit there in the cinema with their popcorn and sit back and go, how good is this? We kind of sit there and go, could we get better seats? It would have been better for us sitting there. This popcorn's a little bit cold on the top. That's so annoying. Uh, I asked for a blueberry chopped up. I've got a vanilla. That's so frustrating. Whatever it is, like we kind of pick everything to pieces. Like we should be sitting back there and going, I mean, I'd give anything to sit in a crowded cinema. You know, last time we went and saw a movie, it was there weren't that many people, and a couple came and sat right next to Penny and I. And I was like, Why Oh, that there? would oh, that would annoy me so much. Yeah, two seats away. Why? What kind of a person sits there when you like? I'd give anything to go and sit next to a stranger in the cinemas right now and watch a movie. Like, um, so I think we were taking things for granted. And I think that's kind of what this, you know, the whole this story is, has, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's been really pivotal for the whole resilience project. I, I need to put it to bed soon. I need to stop telling because it's giving me a headache when I tell the story now because I've told it so many times. <laughs> you probably saw, I probably, I didn't notice it, but when I brought it up, I, you were probably internally eye rolling, like not this, this story again. No, no, but it's like, I get people when I'm like out in the street now, like I'll be, the last time I was at um, a major shopping center, I was just walking ahead of people going, this, this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And I always keep up on the above like pointing down. I was like, oh, hey guys, how you going? Oh, this is so funny. What a great story. <laughs> <laughs> trying to do my shopping. Oh, um, now don't you wish you were at a shopping center in general though. Oh. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Once you were home, I know when people have these kind of life-changing experiences overseas, and you can be really, and I've had them before, and I think when I get home, I'm going to completely change how I live. This is, I'm going to integrate this into my life and it's going to make me more of this person. How did you go integrating these learnings into coming back to such a fast-paced, immediate way of life that we have here? Um, I remember the first two weeks back in Melbourne were two of, like just the happiest weeks of my life because I had missed home a lot. We'd been away for quite a while. I was like all up in India. I think we were there for about, I can't remember, maybe five and a half, six months. So coming back to Australia was a pretty incredible feeling. Like anyone knows you've been away from home for a while. You come home, it's a really amazing feeling. But I certainly was in, um, I found it very difficult to 
when I came back, I remember the thing that really not upset me, but just threw me massively was I came home and I, I, I love getting a coffee and reading the paper. And I got the paper at one of my favorite cafes and I sat down. So the first five pages were all about football. And then the, the back, and I love football. Like I love football more than anyone, but, and then the last 10 pages of the paper were all football. And I was going, what are we like? There is so much stuff happening around the world right now that is more important than this. Yeah, I'm reading about a man's hamstring, like a full page on a man's hamstring. And then, but they're like, I found it really hard. I think there's, we 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 flew out of Delhi, I think, or Mumbai. It was Mumbai. But I read the other day there's 28 28 million people in Mumbai who live in slums. Mm. Now that's more than the population of Australia living. In, and I don't know if anyone's, those of you who have seen slums before, the last, I was in India last year, late last year, and I spent a couple of days in the slums in Delhi with this program, the ASHA program, which is an incredible program, which we can talk about later. But, um, but you know, these people, like it's a tarpaulin roof. I get a tarpaulin roof, there's water dripping through and it rains. They're sleeping on a blanket, which is on top of concrete. And and there are, there's, 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 this, like it's just in fact is it more than that i can't remember the exact number but i, I know it's a lot more than the population of australia yeah. and that's full on like the, the, the stories that the injustice around the world the and we read about football you know that, that's one thing that really i mean i'm used to it again now i don't i don't look at it and go oh my god another story about football i i'm used to it but i remember it was quite a shock coming back um i was in a lucky position in that i i was head coach of a career club melbourne university career club back then and also was a teacher. And so I had two groups of people that I could not trial the stuff on, but sort of just, um, I guess, start to bring gratitude, empathy and mindfulness into the way that I was living and try and take them on the journey with me and just to see how it went down and see what the impact was. And I remember thinking it was quite a, um, especially the kid, not, not, not so much the guys I was coaching. It didn't have a big impact there. In fact, I gave up on it after a while because I wasn't, didn't have quite the confidence to sort of, go through with it. a lot of older blokes are questioning what I was doing, but in the classroom it had a profound impact on these kids. Mm-hmm. I had a group of kids who are um, disengaged adolescents. They weren't, in, they weren't traditional schooling wasn't working for them. So they came to us in this program. Um, There's a great program called CEDA. Um, and, and I had this class and we did heaps of gratitude, empathy, mindfulness stuff. And it had a, I could see the impact it had on them was really big. And this is back in 2009. Uh, yeah. 2009. And, a lot of them have been sending me messages through Instagram recently, the kids I taught then who have just read the book and because there's a whole chapter on them and they're saying, oh my gosh, I remember that. I, I didn't realise that's why you're making us do all that weird stuff. But yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> Is that where Beefy was? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's where yeah. Was. yeah he's yeah, yeah. Probably, probably one of my favourite people I've never met. <laughs> How, what did, can you tell us a little bit about him and what he taught you just with his zest for life? The great man Nick Burke. Oh, I don't. I don't know where to start with him. Uh, <laughs> so my first year back from India, I've got this class of kids. They're all sort of 17, 18. They don't like traditional schooling, so they've come. To, I've just realised I'm just sneaking off the, the screen here. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah, no, it's, it's critically you want this interview to end. It's all right. See you. <laughs> yeah, I know this is not a visual medium for everyone watching, but but Elizabeth is watching me slowly sneak off, sneak off the screen. You see half my head. <laughs> Um, so, Beefy, um, how do I describe Beefy? So, his name's Nick Burke, and I meet my class. They're 17, 18 year olds. And um, one of the kids, 
it was particularly chatty and particularly, and he kind of really got my attention. And um, I remember um, he said to me, I just asked me really strange questions and I went forever and I was like, mate, the day's finished, you can go home. And he just kept asking me questions and toys like, mate, Nick, I'd... and I remember um, I was, uh, my, my boss at the time, my supervisor or my program manager, I sent him an email, said, kids are great, especially that Nick Burke kid, he seems like a real character. And he said, yeah, well, Nick has cerebral palsy. Uh, he also has a condition called hydrocephalus or hydrocephalus. I can't remember, but there's too much fluid on his brain. And he also had a stroke when he was born. So there's certain parts of his body he can't, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, don't, something don't, it, it didn't, yeah, that, 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 that makes sense now, I hear that. Um, and so I proceeded to um, get to know Nick Burke and I, I still, to this day, have never met a person like him. The most, oh, how do I put it into words? Well, the most passionate man, the most, the, the loveliest man, he would never, ever say a mean word about anyone. Uh, he doesn't shut up. He is always talking, um, but he is, uh, he was my, he's my favourite student I've ever taught. And you shouldn't have favourites, but he's by far my favourite. I remember um, I, I got to school one day early and um, I was setting up the classroom and, and he got there and the door was locked and he knocked on the door. So I went open and said, um, and now he's a huge, the most passionate Collingwood supporter I know. And Collingwood had lost the day before and I didn't know that. And I said, um, how's your weekend, Beefy? Uh, and that's, I honestly wanted to know that. And he just said, you can go and get fucked. <laughs> And I said, Beefy, I'm your teacher. And he goes, yeah, I know what you're getting. And I said, no, I'm sorry, you can't talk that. And he goes, yeah, well, if you're going to wind me up like that. And I said, I'm not, I want to, and then I realised Colin had lost the day before and he thought I was trying to wind him up. Um, he, um, I, and I loved him so much, I invited him down to my career club to be the water boy um, because he was just, I just loved having him around. He was just such a good value. Um, and so I said, do you know how to be a water boy? And he goes, yep, yep, that's fine. And they turned up to cricket training a few weeks later and people were going, what do you need? We need a water boy. Like, well, and I said, trust me, we need a water boy. And they went, really? Went, yeah. And, they, and um, I remember um, probably about, he became a cult figure very quickly. He's the first one training. He's the last one to leave. Uh, he catches, takes him an hour and a half to get to training, uh, catches public transport. He's got his water bottles with him. He takes them home. He cleans them every Tuesday, Thursday night. Um, and uh, he, he does stuff like, um, he used to practice like running water. He'd come to training and he'd give you a water bottle and you go, oh, thanks, Beefy. Beefy, there's nothing in here. And he goes, yeah, I'm practicing just like you are. And he takes it off you again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, the, every, every mention of the book in the book about him just completely warms my heart. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I know he's become, as you said, a cult figure, not just in the, yeah. spo- in the sporting clubs that he's helped out with, but to anyone that's read the book and his interaction when you set up for him too. And I don't really want to give too much away, but with the Collingwood football club is just possibly one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. What did that mean to him? Oh, it was amazing. So he started giving motivational impromptu uninvited (laughs) motivational speeches at our career club and everyone loved them so much. They became part of Thursday night training before we, we leave training. He'd give us a motivational speech and they were so passionate and I started I got a few videos of them and I was doing some work with Collingwood Footy Club and I showed them the videos instead just so you know this kid loves you boys like you are his he loves you so much they're rolling on the floor laughing at how good these videos are and then Nathan Buckley said well why don't we do something special for him why don't you, why don't you bring him down to training um and he can run water for us and he said but do it as a surprise like don't let him know just tell him tell him you need you're going to give him a lift somewhere and then drop him at training and and uh, someone, so what happened was I had Beefy in the car with me 
he thought we were going for a walk around the botanical gardens, which he thought was a very strange thing for us to do, <laughs> which it was. <laughs> so I rang him and said, hey, Beefy, what are you doing on uh, Monday? He said, nothing, why? And I said, oh, do you want to go for a walk together? And he went, not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love that honesty. That's what we should all yeah. be like a little totally, bit more. Totally. It would save us so many issues, wouldn't it? Um, and then I said, do you want to get lunch? And he goes, you buying it? And I said, yeah. And he goes, yes, I do. And I went, okay. So, so I pick him up from Richmond Station and I, we'd organised from one of the players, to, a guy called Tarkin Lockyer called and said, Hugh, Hugh, we've got a big problem. One of, the boy, one of the water boys hasn't turned up to training. Do you know a water boy who could come to training? And I looked at Beefy and Beefy's like nodding going, yeah. And I went, you won't believe this. I have a water boy in the car with me right now and we, we are two minutes away. I said, Beefy, are you ready? And he goes, yes. Like, just like, absolutely. So we get to training and um, Nathan Buckley said to me, I wouldn't mind Beefy giving the boys one of his speeches. And I said, no, 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 no. That could, be, this is enough for today. Let's just, and he said, no, nah, he's up to it. And so he brings Beefy in and he said, Beefy, have you got any words for us? He gave him the most almighty rev up I have ever seen. It was, his, it was like this moment of like, he just stepped up and delivered his greatest ever speech with no warning to his heroes. He's like grabbing them by the jumper and going, have a look what this jumper means. He's like, he's looking in the eye. He goes, look at everyone's eyes. Look at him. Everyone's going, whoa, who is this kid? And, <laughs> like, he, was, he was swearing and he's like, he just, he just like, it was, I've never seen someone own a moment like that before ever in my entire life. Like you get this, it's like the whole um, eight mile Eminem thing. Like this is your moment, it's like your one moment. That I was like, I should have, I should have played Eight Mile as a soundtrack in the car because it was like, no one's delivered like that. I've never seen that before, and I was there watching, and I got shivers like all of my body. I was like, oh, I've never had. There's like a religious experience for me just watching this kid with a lot that hasn't gone his way just deliver on the big stage, and the players are like, when it finished, they just went berserk. They're like patting him on the head, patting him on the head, cheering, Aww. yelling, like, and they ran off to the wall going, woohoo, yes, Beefy. And then Beefy looked at Nathan Buckley and he goes, is that what you wanted? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just, he's such a reminder of just to follow your heart and be so passionate oh. about what you love. But what you're saying then, um, you know, you coordinated that whole meeting. That really goes back to the principle of empathy, I imagine why is empathy yeah. so important and what can it give us doing selfless things for other people? If you, well, if I look back on my time in the resilience project, the last 10 years, or even the last 10 years of my life, that is up there with the thing that's given me the most joy in my entire life and continues to be with Beefy. Collingwood footy club still getting down for big games to give motivational speeches. Um, players recognize him in the street. Jordan DeGoey saw him the other day and ran over to him and said, g'day Beefy. Uh, Nathan Buckley saw him the other day and went over and, and um, well, Nathan Buckley wrote something on his Instagram page of something and it continues to, it wasn't that, it was a small thing I did really. I just said to Nathan, yeah, let, let, let's bring him down. I'll organise it, leave it with me. Didn't take much organising and it has brought me, you know, besides, you know, marrying Penny and having the kids and having my family healthy, that kind of stuff, it's probably brought me the most joy out of anything. Um, when you do something nice for someone else, and it's not why I did it, just to be very clear, but when you do something nice for someone else, your brain releases this hormone oxytocin and it makes you feel happy. I'm, the oxytocin that just, I feel this, I actually really feel quite a special bond to a lot of the players at the Collingwood Football Club. And when I it's pretty weird. Like I only did 
four talks to them. Like we did four talks to them. When I see most of them, like we have this, like, it's like we hug. Like I, I took Beefy in there the other day and I walked in, I was like, you know, boys, and we're like hugging and I could just, when I say the other day before coronavirus, we're hugging and like, oh, great to see you. And, and I'm like, in my head, I'm going, this is a bit I actually don't know these guys that well. I've only presented to them four times. And I was trying to, I was in the car driving home going, why do we hug every time we see each other? And I was thinking, I think it's because we shared extremely special moments together. And they came from a small act of kindness. I mean, Nathan Buckley probably deserves a credit for the act of kindness there. I, I took care of the logistics, but it was Nathan's idea. Um, and, and I know um, if you ask, I mean, the footy club, Collingwood Football Club put up a photo the other day for, Nathan's Buck, for Nathan Buckley's birthday on their social media page. And the picture that their social media chose was a picture with him hugging Beefy. And that's the oh picture they God. put up. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I didn't see that. I'll have to go have a look after this. That's yeah, just... so if you look up Collingwood underscore FC, that's their official page. So Beefy, I'm at home looking up um, with the kids and I get a text message from Beefy and all it was is a screen grab of him and Nathan. And he said, this is what Collingwood just posted. And he said, I still can't believe this. Like, it's still the best thing that's ever happened to me. I can't believe that these guys are my heroes, yet they're putting up pictures of me. And yeah, it's a small thing and it, it's, um, it has brought so much joy to so many people. Absolutely. I'd like to take a step back when you, um, when you came back from India and you were doing the talks and you decided to uh, teach the girls, I think the girls you were teaching or maybe the, yeah, about um, what you'd learned about the gem principles. And you thought this is really something, and this is what I really feel quite passionate about. And I feel like could have some legs. What was that period like in between being a full-time teacher and what would then become the resilience project? Very hard, like I suppose, quite ironically, extremely challenging because I um, yeah, got back from India and my partner and I then, my ex and I broke up and we were engaged. So that was a really quite a brutal thing. I wouldn't recommend getting engaged and breaking up to anyone. Yeah, um, done that, been uh, there, done that too. Okay. <laughs> so I feel, I get it. Oh, shit ass, isn't it? It's, it's just, yeah, <laughs> brutal. Mm. Oh my gosh. That's still one of the lowest feelings I've ever had. Um, uh, But so that had happened. And at the same time, I thought, I don't think I'm going to teach you more. I'm going to accept the resilience project. And then no one wanted to know about, like I went to so many schools and spoke to principals and said, oh, doing this program and it's about resilience and we teach these things. And every principal would go, well, who else have you done it for? And I'd go, "Uh, you guys will be the first. Um, But yeah, I think it'll be, you know, I'll do it for free. And they'd still go, no, if it's free, it can't be that good. So now we're fine. So had gone from being in a very secure relationship and having a very secure job. um, And to all of a sudden, um, I was in no relationship and I had no job really. I had this, I was trying to do this thing, the resilience project, but no one was interested in it. And it was a really, really, really tough time. And I have some wonderful friends that I, that, got me through it, but it was incredibly hard. And those principles, I suppose, that I talk about definitely, definitely got me through um, because at my lowest, it was things like, you know, I've got my health and, you know, sun comes up tomorrow. Um, I'm still playing cricket. I love cricket and got my friends and just focusing on the small things that sort of kept me going. But there wasn't much positives in my life. And I've always felt a lot of pressure to make my mum and dad proud and to have them get a lot of joy out of my life because I felt that. And that's, you know, I've since realized that that's a ridiculous thing to do, but I still feel the pressure of, of that um, just being the eldest and with what my sister went through. And so I found it, you know, I love mum and dad and I want to be around them, but even when I was around them, I felt 
a little bit anxious because I was like, I've, I've got no good news for mum and dad here. Like, there's nothing making them proud right now. I'm doing nothing that's making them proud. And I realise now you don't need to be achieving stuff every day to make mum and dad proud. You know, we're all, that's a really important message to understand that we are all worthy of love and affection as we are. We don't have to be, you know, achieving great things in the world. We are, but I didn't know that. And I just felt like I'm doing nothing to make their lives better at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, all I hear about is me not going to be able to get any work and the fact that I'm out drinking a lot because <laughs> I'm single and just like, you know. Um, uh, single and heartbroken. Yeah, yeah. Great company, those people. They're great. <laughs> No one wants yeah. to be stuck with them at a party. <laughs> no, nah, because you're like, you're trying to make everyone think you're so happy and like, you're just like, oh, this is great. I'm so happy now. This. I don't have a... <laughs> <laughs> so like, and it's just, yeah, so yeah. it's really hard. There's a really tough few years of my life and I um, I, I look back on it and, and, um, and, and I'm honestly happy I went through it because it's like, you know, the experience I had there with that breakup and it's just made me a much better partner now like with penny i'm a much better partner because of what i went through mm. in my previous relationship um and so yeah it's all you know often well, like we said before you don't understand at the time why things are happening to you but if you have an attitude that um this will make me stronger at some point and some point i'll look back on this point and think well if this didn't happen i wouldn't be doing this or whatever it is and um yeah, if I didn't go through a heartache, I guess I, I probably wouldn't have. Um, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a much better partner now. Yeah, something kept you going through. You know, it, you could have just gone back and found a comfortable full time teaching gig, but something kept you, kept propelling you forward to push ahead with helping spread the word about Gem. Yeah. Why? You know, what was it that kept you going? Why did you know it was so important, and what kind of impact did you think it could have had on young people's mental health? Um, there's a few things there. Some of them are a little bit selfish. Some of them, are, I suppose, the non-selfish ones are. I would see when I eventually, well, sorry, when I occasionally got the opportunity to speak in front of an audience, I would see the look in people's faces, and I'd see, especially kids. And, I, and I've always tried, myself and Martin, the other presenter at the Resilience Project, who is an extraordinary human being, um, we try and make sure the kids are laughing for most of the session. So it's almost like a bit of a comedy for kids type routine with some really powerful messages in there about own, like your mental health and, and being happy. Um, and just seeing the looks on the kids' faces every time I do it. And I, might only do, I might have only got one opportunity every fortnight or even once a month early on or even less than that, but when I got that opportunity, I'd see the look in the kids' faces and go, I know this is important and they are loving this so much and they need this so much. Um, more of a selfish one was that my, it's such a strange pastime, but, well, such a strange hobby. One of my favourite hobbies is public speaking. Like, I just love public speaking so much. And every time I did that, I was like, I just felt so, like, time stopped and it was just like, I'd get up there and an hour would go like that and it would just be mm-hmm. the most present and um in the moment and joyful experience i'd ever i'd ever you know i grew up thinking i was gonna play cricket for australia and used to be when i was playing cricket i was like this is the best feeling in the world i have to do this for a job because there's nothing better than this until i discovered public speaking i was like no this is my thing this is what i i think i do this a bit better than cricket and i've always so it was like the joy of doing what i love most um and also but then it was also seeing that it definitely had an impact on people in a positive way and um there were like you say you know i kept going and kept going but there were definitely times where i went but i think i'm done now i've run my race i need to um 
uh, I think I need to look at other jobs. And I was looking at jobs. I was looking at different teaching positions and, and um, roles in education. I look at the paper every Saturday morning. The age would have uh, education jobs. I was like, oh, maybe I need to, to do this. Um, and I think I actually did go for a job or two and didn't get them. And I'm, my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't get those mm. jobs. Um, but, uh, but again, that's a, like, I remember the time being devastated going, how have I not got that job? I think it'd be perfect for that. I'd love that. If I got that, you know, we're not having this conversation today. Um, and I know I wouldn't be happy doing what I was doing. So, um, yeah. What is, can you, for people that don't know and haven't read the book yet, what does the resilience project do and what does the term resilience mean to you? Um, so, so I, yeah, so it's a really good question. For, for resilience for me is, um, it's, it's negotiating it. Well, it's, it's just bouncing back from a difficult moment in your life. And we all have these moments in our life, whether it's small things as a kid in the playground drops their lunch and it gets dirty and they don't have lunch or whether it's, you know, little things like um, you forget your homework or, and then it becomes bigger things like, you know, losing a loved one or, or, um, or parents breaking up or, and then as an adult, it's dealing with your own issues. We all have moments in our life that, um, you know, people often say to me, what do you want most for your kids, Benji and Elsie? And, and I, I don't think it's, that I want them to be happy. I think that's a bit of an unrealistic expectation. I think what I want for them is to be able to bounce back when stuff goes wrong. Cause I know it'll go wrong. So I think it's bouncing back essentially at a very simple level. Um, and how do we, so our job really is at the Resilience Project is to get people to understand that there are things they can do every day that will help them to feel happier, will help improve their mental health, um, and will help them to be more resilient. The, the, it's, you know, it's really important to say also that everything we do is based on science. So it's not me. I don't get up and say, there's a kid in India that does this stuff, so you should do this stuff as well. There is so much science behind all this stuff. Um, and so we present evidence-based I mean, the, the, the main body of evidence around resilience says the most resilient people in the world are the people who experience the most positive emotion. And the, most, the majority of that research was done back in um, a lady called, a wonderful woman called Barbara Fredrickson, who I've had the great joy of meeting before, uh, over at University of North Carolina, I think. Um, she did a study after 9-11 and looked at people, studied people who had lost loved ones through 9-11 and, and were in New York. And what she found was overwhelmingly um, the people who bounced back the quickest from the trauma in their life were the ones who had the most positive emotion in their life. So essentially what we try and teach to anyone we work with, whether it's a kindergarten, a high school, um, uh, the Australian cricket team, Coles, lawyers, whoever we're working with at the moment, um, what we, what we, uh, I had Toyota staff this morning, um, we try and teach strategies to to cultivate positive emotion in your life so you can be more resilient um and we do that in a range of ways like the the resilience project used to be a talk it used to be me doing a a, a talk and that was it and then in the end i'm like well doing a one-off talk is probably you need to do more than that if you want to have an impact on a group so if it was a school we did the whole community so all the students all the parents all the teachers then it became curriculum for school. So every school we work with now does curriculum. The kids actually practice this stuff every single day in yeah. school. We've now got, this is the amazing thing, we've now got 200,000 kids around the country um, practicing this stuff um, every single day, which I still cannot believe um, as part of their curriculum. Um, if we're, you know, we're doing a program for Coles right now, which is 120,000 staff. Wow. We do, you know, yeah, we do video presentations to them every single week. They've all got one of our resilience project journals. They all fill that out. 
Then we, every 21 days, we give them a different 21 day challenge around the things that create positive emotion in their life. We have check-in sessions where they, they, we have a, um, uh, they can all join the zoom chat. And I just basically with a, with a wonderful facilitator, Mel, um, uh, we will then throw over them and say, share with us what's going on in your life. How hard are things at the moment? Like be vulnerable. And there's cold staff more around the country opening up about their struggles and we're talking them through it. And, um, there's an app that people are using now. Um, it's a digital program now. So schools from anywhere around the country can just click. Yep. We'll have that. And they get all our video content plus the curriculum. So we're just trying to reach as many people as we can, because we, we had Melbourne university did an evaluation of our program over the last three years. And, and the results are, um, make me very, very emotional, but, um, it, to, to see the impact that it's having, but, um, basically it helps people to be happier. It helps them to be more resilient. It helps them cope. Uh, they become more grateful, more empathetic, more mindful. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a long answer to your question, but it's lots of things, resilience project at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got and- this, oh, I was just going to say, I've got this incredible team. There's now 11 of us and they are the most wonderful people. And whether it's the accountant, Helen, who does, who is just the biggest genius I've ever met in my entire life, whether she's making it all possible for a finance point of view, or there's, you know, Laura who, who, who takes, you know, all the emails that come into the resilience project or Martin, the other presenter or Anthony, everyone's doing this incredible job. Ben, our general manager, who it has to be the greatest general manager in the history of general managers who brings <laughs> it all together. So um, yeah, we, uh, yeah, it's a lot of people making it possible for, for a big audience. It did start with kids and students and young people. Why, why was it so important for you to be targeting this, people so young, people that age group with this messaging? Well, it was more about the group that I felt comfortable speaking with, to be honest. Like I didn't feel, I was 28 when I started and and I was doing it for primary school kids because I'm a primary school teacher and I feel extremely comfortable in front of a big group of primary school kids. There's probably no audience. There is definitely no audience I feel more comfortable in front of as a group of, um, you know, give me 300 grade threes to grade sixes. I couldn't be happier. Um, uh, so... But that was only because I was, I was comfortable with them. And also I was able to say to schools, I think this is the most important age group, but it was also because that's where I felt most comfortable. But, <laughs> I, was, but I was able to say, I think this is really important I learned at this age. And then they'd say, can you do this for teachers? And I was saying, no, 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 I've only been teaching for four years. I'm, I'm not going to get in front of me. But we did it once and it went really well. And then, and then from that point on, it became parents. And I wasn't a parent when I started doing these parent talks, but they went reasonably well. So we just kept doing them. And, and um, yeah, it just went from, you know, it was primary school kids and now it's, um, it's, I feel like there's no one we haven't really talked to yet. Like it's kind of every sector of society with kind of, you know, people in jail and, and um, you know, part of all types of different audiences had some real, I've gone to, you know, I don't know if you know, you know, angry dad, that guy on social media with his kid. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine who plays for Collingwood, we used to play for Collingwood, Paul Seisman said, oh, I'd love you to go and do a talk at my, and I have this really great relationship with this guy, Paul Seisman, who plays for Adelaide now, but he said, oh, family I'm really tight with that, that, that they really need this message could you come over to their house and I was like oh I guess so and I went over there and it was angry dad's house and I met at the door by angry dad so I'm doing a presentation <laughs> I'm doing a presentation to the Orvilles over dinner with a tv screen there and, I'm, and so it's been some very weird audiences but um it's to, yeah it started off you're right it started off with young kids and that, that is will always be our bread and butter that'll always be our focus uh, yeah. has always been always be. why do you think it's had such a massive impact like it hasn't grown like it has you know what 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 is it about our society about our culture that was crying out for something like this do you think 
Well, I think it's because everyone that you speak to has been touched by mental illness at some point, whether it's someone they know or themselves. And they're not, I don't want to be critical of, like there's so many wonderful organisations dealing with the mental health space at the moment, doing great stuff and a lot of reactive stuff around here's what you do when you've, you know, here's how you pick the symptoms of depression and anxiety and it's really great stuff. But I feel like what we came in and started doing 10 years ago is here's some stuff you can do at the preventative end, like to try and stop this happening in the first place. Mm. Um, it's just a few simple strategies. And I think people really latched onto that because had I not done gone and done this, but then I went and heard someone talk about things you could do from a preventative age as a parent, I'm like, well, give me everything. Like I'll, 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 I'm taking notes furiously. I need to know what to do to prevent this for my kids because I don't want to go through as a family what, what, what my family went through with my sister. But then, you know, I think about, um, you know, I really, I've, you would have, you've read the book, you've read the chapter on Luke, uh, a, mm. a young, young man with autism who was a scorer at my career club who took his life five years ago now, a beautiful man who, you know, I, I didn't even, no, no one even knew he was battling with this depression. He didn't tell a soul. He was very good at hiding it. Um, and so we've all got a story of someone that we know and we care about. And so when we hear a message of around mental health, that is not like you're being lectured to. I, we're very, very clear with the Resilience Project. We don't get up and reel off stats and, and strategies. We tell stories, we tell stories, we tell stories. People relate to stories, people love stories. It's all storytelling. It's about being very vulnerable. We never say, guys, be like us. We do this. We just say, hey, we're as, we're as messed up as everyone else is. But here's some stuff we know really works. And and I think that that form of messaging really helps. I mean, you work on the project. My gosh, no one tells a story better than the project. You know, it's, um, it's I mean, people, there are people watching the project that would never tune into the news. Mm. But they're watching you guys because you're incredible storytellers. People tune in and watch stories and then, and then they go, oh, I've just watched the news. But I didn't know it was a time I was listening to stories. And I think we're trying to do a similar thing in that, like, present mental health in a way that's not, oh, God, I'm going to listen to I mean, the amount of men that come up to me and say, oh, my wife dragged me along here. I didn't want to go because I thought it was a terrific mental health. That was awesome, mate. I love those stories. It wasn't about mental health at all. I mean, it was, but... I didn't you said in like the book to- too, you'd go to places and you'd hear them audibly <laughs> groan when... <laughs> oh, some of the stuff I've put up with, because... Because we get invited out to very tough audiences because that's kind of, I reckon, Mark and I, that's our bread and butter. We did a mining community for a while. It's like blokes, it's just men, like, and men who are, who won't be shy telling you what they think about you the second you walk into the room. Um, and I remember walking into a room once and I just copped it for five minutes about um, how skinny my jeans were, how shit my, what was it? I was just, I copped it. I'd never met him before. And this one bloke said, this one bloke said, how long is this going for? I said, oh, about me goes, whatever your answer was, do it in five fucking minutes, mate. I'm not interested. Oh my and then God. he went and sat down and I was like, but that, that's kind of what I'm used to when you go to these places, but there's nothing better than when you win them over. Like it's, Martin and I have managed to do it for a while now, but yeah, we're very used to males. So, and then I see those kind of like crying as well while I'm talking and I go, I gotcha. I knew like, I, I, there's a reason you don't want to be here. There's a reason you, and so when you, when you resonate with them, you spend five, 10 minutes making them go, oh, this guy's not speaking down to us. Like, yep. he's just like us. He's just a, like, he's a bumbling, fumbling mess himself. Like, he's not, um, he's, and, um, and then when you get him, yeah, it's an amazing feeling. But why am I telling you that story? I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I think it was why it's had such an impact in Australia. Oh, yes. Yeah. Why we were crying out for something like this. It does. It makes sense. Your answer makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I think, I think what I'm trying to say without sounding really up ourselves is I feel like we kind of resonate with the common person pretty easily. And we, we are able to sort of, you know, if we're whoever is speaking to, I feel like we can kind of speak their language and not feel like we're saying coming from a place of, you know, I spent the first two minutes trying to make it very clear. I'm just like you, like, I'm not, I'm not a special person who knows incredible. I'm just like you guys. I've, here's my sister's story. It's heartbreaking to talk about, but here it is. Here's some stuff you can do that might help if you, if this hurt you or you didn't like hearing the story. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think that's kind of why it's gone really well. I, I don't know, but I, but I, yeah. I, yeah. I think we use the, I very much to be honest, like I look at the project as like a, that's the way that, we need to be delivering not just the news, but all, all types of things at the moment. Now, I mentioned earlier that I'm the mum of a four-year-old son and many of my listeners are parents. What can we as parents do to raise the next generation to be resilient and to just effortlessly implement the practices of GEM, the principles of GEM without, you know, even knowing it's just part of their life? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, it, it's all the stuff I'm trying to do right now with Benji. Like I just, I'll give you, because I'm so, 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 as I said before, my, with my wife's battles with OCD, I'm so keenly tuned into this at the moment. But um, the most important thing I can say to parents right now is um, what our kids want for us, want from us more than anything is for us to just show up authentically, just show up for them. And, and uh, you're not going to get it right all the time. In fact, like I said before, like, <laughs> you win something you lose most that that's how i feel as a parent right now mm-hmm. and that's okay like as long as you're showing up for them and you're doing that authentically and you're there when you're there you're there with them and you'll stuff up you can talk them through your mistakes and um you can talk them through all the you know just be authentic with them that that's what they need and i think that's the healthiest thing for them um but as far as and i, I, don't, I don't like using the word trick but i don't know how, what other use word i've got to use but trick them into practicing gratitude empathy mindfulness like i've done it with benji when we lie in bed together at night who's three and a half now, by the way, my gosh, everyone told me about the terrible twos and we braced ourselves for that. And we got through that. No one told me about what happens when they turn three. Oh my gosh. <laughs> three major. <laughs> oh, God. It I, is like brutal. My son's just turned four and I feel like, yeah, they've become really sassy. Like yeah. They're just a, yeah, brutal and just can break your heart in an instant and then walk off. <laughs> He said to me, Benji said to me, um, the other night we were in bed together and we were falling asleep. And he went, this is the, the two different shades that, that he, so he said, um, the night before he said to Penny, Penny said to me, oh, it's so lovely in bed tonight. We take him turns to lie in bed with him when he falls asleep. She said to, he said to Penny, um, today was a lovely day, mummy, a lovely day. And then he said, but I don't like peanut butter anymore. And she said, oh, okay. And he said, I don't, I don't like sheds either. And she said, what? And he said, what's a shed? <laughs> So, well, my son cracked. I, sorry, you go. No, 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 no. Well, he just. Oh, well, he, he just, cracked it at me the other day, saying, "Oh, sorry, I spoke over you again." You go. No, no, no. You go. You go with this. <laughs> you go with this. I'm obviously I'm very older. passionate about this story. Um, <laughs> he said to me the other day, he cracked it and was very angry because he does not want to go to the moon. <laughs> I'm like, sure, I. Can. <laughs> Like, I don't want to go to the moon, mummy. I'm like, 
Oh, that can that's be arranged. Oh, yeah. sorry. Now you go. <laughs> no, no, so, no it's, I love it. It's so consistent with what I'm getting at home at the moment. Um, so he's lovely to Penny. And I was like, oh, I can't wait for, to go to bed with him. It sounds like he's going through a really lovely stage. So I lay in bed with him and we we're, were just chatting away. And he said, hey, daddy. And I said, yes, Benji. I was like, oh, here it comes. And he goes, he pointed at me. He said, I don't love you. Now cry. <laughs> <laughs> He rolls over and goes to sleep. I'm like, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no one tells you about this when you become a parent. I swear, no yeah. one tells you yeah. this weird. Oh, no. um, um, anyway, so so yeah, so to, for, for parents to get your kids to do this stuff, this will take thirty seconds to talk you through. At some stage throughout the day, ask them what what went well for you today. What was your favourite thing today? Great episode of Bluey. What I think it's your favourite thing. It's called. Um, but the science behind that is it, it, it rewires their brain to start scanning the world for the positive every single day. So have the discussion around the dinner table at bed at night, get them to write it in a journal or if they like drawing pictures, they could draw it, whatever you want, three things every day that went well. Second way is if you could try and get them to do maybe a random act of kindness a week, like just have a chat. Who's someone we could do something for? Um, grandma, yeah, what can we do for grandma? Why don't we draw grandma a picture? Yeah. And we'll take a photo and we'll send it to her. Just random acts of kindness. So one a week I think is really good. So they get to experience the oxytocin and talk about why they're choosing that person. And then for mindfulness, um, Benji and I, we, we do it however it's going to work with your kids. But one of the things that we do, which is really powerful, is we've got a trampoline at home and we lie on the trampoline at around 5.30, 5.45 now when the sun's gone down. And so, And it's when the stars just start to come out. So we lie there and we say, let's wait till we can see the stars. And when we're waiting to see the stars and he's looking around, I'll go, what can you hear right now? And he'll say, birds, I can hear the train, your cars. And honestly, it only lasts 20 seconds with him at the moment. Um, but it's literally like it's improving. I feel like every month it gets a little bit longer. And all I'm getting him to do is to pay attention to what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. So when will we see the stars? Uh, when can we hear things? Um, all that kind of stuff. And um, the other day we actually, for the first time, ever he initiated it he said no it was the most amazing one of my happiest memories of my life we were we lay there and he said no i'm gonna put my head on your tummy so he lay there with his i was on my back he had his head on my tummy looking up at the stars and honestly we had unheard of we had 15 minutes just looking at the stars together oh. um didn't say a word and then half of here he goes daddy we're not speaking and just like kept, <laughs> just kept looking <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a, um, so there, there are three ways you could probably sort of try and get your kids to, to, to maybe practice gem every single day. And the reason the science says that'll help them create more positive emotion and that'll help them to be more resilient. Absolutely. Now, Hugh, I finish all of my interviews in the same way. And that's what would the Hugh now in front of me tell the Hugh going through a dark, difficult time, whenever that might've been, what would that advice be? Yeah, I actually dropped it earlier, um, uh, which was, um, and again, I wish I had, I didn't understand this till very recently, I, uh, until a couple of years ago, an amazing man who mentors me, Ben Crow, um, talked to me, uh, talked me through this. But um, what I would say to myself at so many key junctions in my life is that you are worthy of love and affection as you are right now. You don't need to be the best cricketer. You don't need to be the most... Um, energetic, like lively person in the room. You don't need to be the funniest person in the room. You don't need to um, be the best looking, which is always good news for me. But uh, <laughs> you don't. You don't need to be. You know all these things. Just like you were. Like if you're worthy, you are worthy. And there are times where you know, straight after the breakup with my ex fiance, when I wasn't really working, I felt 
so unworthy of connection and just I felt so low and I was very lucky I never really dipped into anything like depression or anything I was just very lucky that way but I felt I didn't really feel very worthy of showing up in the world I felt a little bit ashamed of the fact I didn't I was 28 or 29 and didn't have a job really and had no money to my name and and no <laughs> no chances of ever meeting anyone um but um, I would I would I would say you're worthy and that's a message to everyone no matter what you're going through in life right now that you are worthy of love and affection as you are you don't need to be the perfect mum or dad to be worthy of love from your kids you don't need to be earning a huge salary you as a person as you are you're worthy um and the people that make you feel that um despite how much money you're earning or despite what clothes you wear they're the people you want to spend your time with yeah. uh, the people who make you feel worthy when you're at your lowest Oh, I love that. That is such a beautiful note to finish this interview on. Thank you so much. It's no exaggeration when I say that this is honestly one of my favorite books and I sound like such a fangirl right now. And I got my mom on, my friend Georgia recommended it to me. And then I got my mom onto it. I got so many friends. I've got my ex, my son's dad onto it and every one of them, it's changed their lives. So thank you so very much for everything you do. It's, I just hope... Uh, that you know, my it gives me hope that my son will grow up in a world that's more resilient and more compassionate and kind. Well, that's a very, very lovely thing to say. Thank you so much, and oh, thanks for having me as well. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've told many stories I've never told before. I don't know what you'll let it be, but anyway, they're all good. staying in, even <laughs> every bit. Even Biggie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Biggie, for your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lemonade. To follow Hugh and get your hands on The Resilience Project or check out his podcast, the links are in the show notes. As always, you can connect with me at Elizabeth O'Neill. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you could leave a review, hit five stars and subscribe. This helps boost Lemonade in the rankings and will hopefully mean more people will find the content who perhaps really need it. Thanks again and stay safe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.